47th verse. So read along with me quietly as I read the text, starting in verse 47, Luke chapter 22. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. Jesus touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priest, captain of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. After a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of him, of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. He said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit, Lord, would speak again afresh and anew this morning. Whether we've read this text before or maybe it's new, that it would all be new to us, that you would share something that you want each person to learn from, to glean from, to grow from. We ask this humbly, believing you want to do a great work, even here this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So, with this betrayal and this arrest and the culminating interrogation of Jesus, we see not only Jesus' response here in teaching, even in the midst of great agony and grief, but we see what I want to draw your attention here today to is a striking contrast between two of Jesus' disciples. One... One of these disciples who appeared outwardly as a true believer, but he was not. And one who outwardly was often impulsive, more than a little rough around the edges, but was a true believer and follower of Jesus. That's good hope for the rest of you in here if you're a little rough around the edges. If you're far from perfected. If you've got a ways to go, welcome to the club. But you can still be a genuine follower of Jesus. But you also, as you see with one of these disciples, can look the part, but not be the part. Judas, he was more level-headed, measured, diplomatic, 
may have even at times appeared more caring and more compassionate. But deep down inside, he was all about himself. He had never really been changed. Isn't that sad? He had never really been changed. Peter, on the other hand, for all of his flaws, was truly passionate about Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? You, you know, Peter takes a bad rap a lot of times. Peter was truly passionate about Jesus. He was truly thankful for his salvation. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you, you read the life of Peter. He was thankful for his salvation. Here's another thing about Peter. He truly knew, knew, he truly knew that he needed God's help, and he needed God's grace. Remember when Jesus said, I want to wash your feet? Peter said, wash me from head to toe. That's a, I mean, he, he's saying, Lord, if you think my feet are dirty, you should see the rest of me. He greatly desired to please Jesus with his life. He wanted to take big steps of faith, and he did. He stepped out of the boat when no one else would. He's one of the only two people ever to walk on water. Jesus being the other one. When I get to heaven and meet Peter and you too, I want to I hear about that night. He's with Jesus. He's going to sit on one of the 12 thrones. He, he, he had a passion for the Lord. He even wanted... He wanted to have courage, and he even wanted to die for Christ. He said, I'll, just, I'll go right there with you. And yet, for all that, Peter's flesh would sometimes get in the way. And God would use his failures for doing two things, correcting him and maturing him. This is precisely what God wants to do with our failures. Isn't that good to know? That's what God wants to do with our failures. Correct us, mature us. All who are really saved, hear this out, all who are really saved will have some embarrassing moments. Can you remember any? Everyone who's saved is going to have some embarrassing moments. Some frustrating times some uncomfortable failures, some falls we'd rather forget. Now, before I was saved, I had some of these, but they were different kinds. I, when I was a teenager, which is now 30, 30 years ago now, when I was a teenager, uh, I was quite confident, arrogant. I'll never forget, I was with some teen, we, were at, we were at a ski resort, and we, we were walking up uh, with some friends of mine, and the snow had begun to melt, and there was this huge puddle. And, and you know, we're just strolling along. There's, there's ice, snow, melting stuff. And one of my friends said, hey, hey be, well, I'm just strolling along at a brisk pace. Hey, hey be careful. That's pretty, uh, I don't fall like the rest of y'all. The very next second, <laughs> feet one way, I landed completely in the puddle. My teenage buddies were loving it. Very nice. God speaks to us long before we're saved, doesn't he? Say, look, that banana peel's right around the corner for you. First time I went skiing, some of my friends took lessons, not me. I said, I don't need lessons. 
I've surfed, I've done this. I, I went straight down the hill, and I, my wife still asks this. I was blowing past everyone. I'm like, these people are so slow. I'm like going, I'm flying by people. Then about midway down the mountain, I'm like, how do I stop? <laughs> I had no clue how I was supposed to stop. And I was hauling by everybody else. I mean, these people are amateurs and all this stuff. And then to stop, I had to flip like I don't know how many times. <laughs> I went back to one of my friends and took lessons. What did they teach you in that class? <laughs> so it's good to learn. God will show us a few things in life with falls, won't he? We'll go back and say, I need to learn something. I, I thought I knew it all. I thought I understood how this worked. But one of the things that we learn is that apart from his grace, our entire life would be an epic fail one of the things we learn with failures. I'm talking about spiritual falls, spiritual uh, times where we stumble. Apart from his grace, our life would just be one epic fail. But remember, Christian, as he said in Luke 22, verse 32, look back at the 32nd verse, same chapter, first half of the sentence that Jesus says, Luke 22, this is before they left the upper room, before these guys failed to pray. Before Peter denies Jesus, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. See, it's, impos- it's possible to fall, but not utterly fail. Abraham fell a few times, but he didn't fail. Moses fell some time, he didn't fail. David fell some time, but he didn't fail. All throughout the Bible, you're going to see times where people fall, but not actually, utterly fail. And Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith might fail. He's prayed for all of his sons and daughters in this room. If you're one of the sons and daughters of Christ, he's prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And guess what? It won't. It'll hold you tight. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's word this morning, A Kiss and a Fall. It is a contrast. He's not holding on to those that are not holding on to him. And Judas wasn't holding on to him. Although it may have appeared on the outside he was, he wasn't. We want to look at five things. The first thing I want to look at this morning relates to Judas. I've titled it premeditation. Premeditation. We know from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, we've got to go back about four studies when we were at the beginning of the chapter. In verses 1 through 6 of this same chapter, we know, as well as we know this from uh, Matthew and Mark's Gospels, that, uh, that uh, Judas, he went ahead of time. No one knew he did this. He went ahead of time, the chief priest, and had a little secret meeting to set the trap for Jesus. And it was at that meeting that he accepted 30 pieces of silver to secure the arrangement. This wasn't an accidental thing. This wasn't a... Whoop, I bump, hey, I just bumped into one of the chief priests on the corner. Got into a random conversation. He went there with a purpose to arrange the meeting, discuss the financial terms, set the whole thing up. Judas was plotting and planning, and interestingly enough, he was unwittingly fulfilling prophetic scripture. He didn't, I, I, I doubt even, that even dawned on him that he was fulfilling the scriptures. In Psalm 41, verse 9, in the Old Testament, it says this. Even David wrote it. Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate 
my bread. Listen to these words. Who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus then quotes that same passage. Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9 in John 13.18, and he refers it to who? Judas. See, the betrayal of King David in the Old Testament is then experienced and magnified more fully in Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And while they were eating the Passover meal, as the psalmist wrote, who ate my bread, Jesus said, this is my bread, which is broken for you. He was fulfilling Scripture, and he didn't even realize it. All the while, while he was eating with Jesus, he was planning on turning him over to those seeking his death. And so Judas, interestingly enough, he keeps his promise to the enemies of Christ. He keeps his promise to the chief priests and scribes. He does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his promise to Jesus' enemies, and he breaks every promise he ever made to Jesus. The kiss that Judas uses, Jesus says, have you come, are you betraying me with a kiss in verse 48? The kiss that Judas uses is one of several types of kisses that were found in the Middle East culture, and some are still used today. There were kisses on the feet. Well, that was a, you were completely prostrate. Uh, a kiss on the feet, authority. Back of the hand, the kiss to the back of the hand was, was uh, used during that time. The cheek, on the cheeks. The hem of a garment. You could actually, there was, a, there was one that would kiss the actual hem of a garment. The kiss on the cheek here was a sign of honor, the sign of respect. It was a sign of a deep relationship such as a mentor would have with their master or someone who is really teaching them. You think of like uh, um, Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. Elijah was so loved by Elisha, Elisha wouldn't let Elijah go. You got to bless me. You got to bless me. You got to bless me. Joshua with Moses would be a good example. Moses was the mentor. Joshua was the understudy. Timothy and Paul. We see this in the scriptures. So Judas coming is like Timothy approaching Paul, Joshua approaching Moses. Great sign of respect, love, relationship, teacher student relationship. Mark tells us that Judas, when he walked towards Jesus, probably arms out said, Rabbi, means master. but it was all in deception. This is the type of two-faced deception and covert operation that Satan loves, authors, and has perfected all around the world. He's done it for centuries. He's used people to do this again and again and again. Now, some pastors and teachers uh, have said that Judas was perhaps a true follower of Christ that went bad, or maybe a well-intentioned Jewish zealot and uh, that became misguided and disillusioned. And there are some that will teach that. It's not, a, it's not a false teaching. It's not a heresy. It's just a perspective that some have taken. Some theologians have taken the Scriptures and view it that way, that you know, these are some of the uh, plausible things that would describe how Judas was this way, and then all of a sudden he's this deceptive, backstabbing. But Jesus' own assessment... And well before that betrayal, I believe, refutes 
any of those arguments, that he was good, that went bad, overzealous, any of those things. I think Jesus' own assessment refutes that. In John 6, verse 70, Jesus said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? That's pretty self-explanatory there, isn't it? Not used to be good. He said, one of you is. This is while they were currently in ministry together. This is, lo- this is well before the betrayal. He said, one of you is a devil. Turn with me to John 6. I want you to see it in the context for just a second. John chapter 6. I want you to see the context of this because there's something else here that I don't know. I had never noticed until I was studying it this week. And I noticed it. I do what I often do. I run and tell my wife. Look what I found. I didn't have anyone else to tell, so now I'm, now I'm telling you. So God already knew it, so I couldn't tell him. So yeah, I knew that. John chapter 6, and go all the way to verse 70. Long chapter. But go back up to verse 68. Verse 67, because Jesus says something too. He says, in verse 67, Jesus says to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Because a bunch of disciples had bailed on Jesus, said, it's too hard following this guy. I don't want to do it. I don't want to give up my whole life and follow him. So a bunch of people left. They stopped going to church, if you will. I'm out of here. Simon Peter answered, Jesus said, do you all want to go away? And Simon Peter answered him. Notice Peter's first. Simon Peter answered him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know. You can circle that in your Bible. Believe and know. We have come to believe and know. This is at the heart level. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus answered and said, Did I not choose you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Peter comes first and we see true faith. He says, there's no way I'm bailing because you're the only way to eternal life. There's no way I'm leaving because we've come to believe you're the only way, the truth, and life. We can't leave. And Jesus says, yeah, there's 12 of you, but one of you doesn't believe this. This is well before the betrayal. So we see the contrast. Who is it here? Peter, Judas. They come back and contrast again here in the garden. He spoke in verse 71. If you say, well, was he really speaking about Judas? Well, look at verse 71. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So long before the betrayal, Jesus says, one of you is not really with me. You're following the devil. It's basically, when he says that one of you is a devil, it's synonymous saying one of you is following the devil. But they didn't know who it was because everyone looked just the same to them. Jesus knew. Go back to our text. Seemingly nice people, well-mannered people, are not always what they appear. Understand that. Especially you as parents, people want to get in your kid's life. You better really have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Because there will be people that will want to get in your kid's life that will mean them nothing but evil. But they won't come across that way necessarily. You've got to have the discernment of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying this, that we would develop some suspicious attitudes or anything like that. No, I want us to keep loving people, keep trusting that God will know the depths of people's hearts. It's not my job to figure everybody out. 
nor yours either. But I do want wisdom. But the fact remains that, as Jesus warned, tares would actually be right among the wheat. They grow side by side. And one more thing to understand about Judas before we move on. One of the distinctive differences between someone who's born again and a non-believer, because your whole life you'll be wondering as you read the scripture, you read the many parables, most of them deal with true and false conversion. Jesus always talked about, Jesus says a, a, a tree that's real will bear fruit and one that is not will never bear fruit. I mean, these are things that he points out. But one of the distinctive differences between someone born again and a non-believer is someone that is born again is going to have a much harder time (laughs) speaking. You you can't talk about stumbling without stumbling, so anyway. But one of the things about someone that's born again, will have a harder time planning and premeditating sin. Make sense? Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us doesn't... We go to plan a sin, the Holy Spirit says, no way. Change your plans. Right? We have a hard time. I'm not saying it's impossible for a Christian to do, because it is possible for a Christian to plan and premeditate sin. I believe it is. It's going to be far harder that the Holy Spirit is going to be there to convict you every step of the way. Now, this can happen in the life of a believer a couple of ways. If they ever get to the place with premeditative sin, it usually happens like this. First, they drift away due to apathy, neglect, spiritual laziness, or a lack of gratitude for salvation. As long as Peter remained thankful for salvation, doesn't have spiritual neglect, keeps praying, all these things, these things it's going to be way harder to have premeditated sin. But the initial point of sin is rarely going to be premeditated by a Christian. We rarely say, we rarely get up and say, I am going to sin so much today, it's going to be great. Even when David sinned so greatly, his initial sin, David's initial sin was that he had stopped engaging in the battle. That was his initial sin. He had stopped, he was supposed to be out doing battle, but he was back taking it easy. He kicked back to chill out. David felt he had done enough. He had won enough battles. If you ever think you've won enough battles, that's not a good thought. That's from the enemy. You're supposed to stay engaged in the battle, on your knees, stay in the word. David checked out for just long enough and thought someone else can do the serving. Someone else can do the leading. Then he was tempted unexpectedly. That came unexpectedly, which led to the premeditation to cover sin. But the initial point of sin was not premeditated. He had just kind of zoned out, checked out, chilled out, and then Satan blew him out, right? Judas, so much of his sin was calculated and premeditated, though. It wasn't that he had gotten away from prayer and devotions and then a sudden moment said, oh, there's Jesus, arrest him. It wasn't a sudden thing. Now, he had secretly plotted with the leaders. Throughout his lifetime, he had not truly believed in Jesus. We know this because Jesus makes that clear when Peter makes his statement. Jesus makes clear, one of you doesn't believe this. He was always resisting forgiveness, resisting grace, and that resulted 
And ultimately, he ended up being filled by Satan himself earlier in the chapter, verses 1 through 6. It says Satan entered into Judas. So by the time he walks in the Garden of Gethsemane, he not only was following the devil, the devil was in him. This will happen with the Antichrist. Very few people in human history will ever have been filled by the devil. Judas was one of them. I believe there are probably a few others in history, but this was one of the ones that was the worst, and this was what Satan was really, really planning on. Let's look at the next. Um, Jesus teach, t- teaches at this moment. Instead of just um, focusing on himself, Jesus is always looking out for us, isn't he? He always wants us to, to grow. Uh, you know why? Because Jesus, you can't teach him anything. You know that Jesus can't, he couldn't grow, but we can. He didn't need to grow. He was there to submit and surrender his life. He was not there to grow. We need to grow. And see, even here in this time, he's still focused on teaching his disciples something. The disciples, their immediate response with the kiss of Judas, and here comes all these guards, and they're here to arrest Jesus, their immediate response was to fight. And by the way, I do think there are times when a Christian has to fight. I do. I think, I mean, even, even physically. Um, you know, if someone's attacking my family, is innocent people involved? I think there's a time to step up. But there are times that innocent people's lives are uh, at stake. If you think about ministries like Victor Marks, who's over there trying to help these innocent children and families being slaughtered by ISIS in the Middle East. And, and these guys are willing. Some of them are former rangers and, and former uh, uh, special forces guys that are going in there and doing heavy work to save people's lives. And you look at West Bentley and what they're doing in South Sudan, and, and, and really these, some of these men have died on the battlefield protecting Muslim women and children, not just Christian, but even protecting Muslim women and children as well as Christians. And uh, there, is, there is a time that it's okay to fight on behalf of innocent people. I mean, if you saw someone, uh, a terrorist, mowing down people in the mall and there's something you could do about it, I hope you would, right? Because you can save other lives. So there is a time to fight. We know from John's gospel that Peter was ready to fight, and we know that it was Peter who takes off the ear. Perhaps, uh, and even likely, he wasn't aiming for the ear. He might have been aiming for what? The throat. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each give Peter a break and don't mention his name. John, his good friend John, mentions his name. (laughs) Him and John were like this. John, the Holy Spirit, so far, no one's mentioned. John comes along and says, yeah, I'm going to put Peter's name down. Yes, uh, he, I was there. He's the one that did it. Yes, he, it was him. John calls him out. Three don't mention his name. Three of them say, one of them, one of them took off his ear. John says, yeah, that was Peter. <laughs> he was always ready. <laughs> but you can't blame Peter and the others for wanting to fight, right? Except they have a master, and it's his call, not theirs. You can't blame him for wanting to, but it's his call. And even here, he picks up an ear off the ground 
puts it right back together. Fastest surgery ever. Done. Again, that still amazes me that every guard there doesn't say, maybe we shouldn't take this guy to the high priest. Still blows me away that everyone is so focused on sin that their vision is just just black as could black as night. Yes, our desired response to something wrong might be to fight, to make things right, to fix it. But there are those times, just like there's those times that maybe standing up to fight. God would allow, and he would even ask us to do. There are those times, in fact, here's the thing, most times where God would have us turn the other cheek, where God says, hold your sword, where God says, trust his will, and he'll even use wrong or persecution for his glory. That we see a lot. The disciples would have to go through this later in their life. Earlier, when Peter said... When Peter said he would not permit Jesus to go and die on the cross, Peter said, I will not permit it. Jesus said what to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. The will and the word of God always supersedes what we think or what we think we understand. The will and the word of God do not lean to your own understanding. It doesn't matter how mature you as a Christian don't need your own understanding because our own understanding is flawed. God would say, no, no, no. I, well, Jesus, just a few minutes ago, you told us to go buy a sword. Wasn't that for this moment? No, nope. that was for when you travel through the desert and maybe uh, you have to fight off a wild animal. It wasn't for this moment. God's word supersedes, his will supersedes what we think is right or logical. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. That's what he said. Christian, most of our battles are to be won on our knees. And if you can't get on your knees and you're too old to get on your knees, you, then mentally you're on your knees. It's that fervency of prayer. It's not necessarily the physical posture, although that's a good thing. We talked about that because uh, Jesus got on his knees. But at least the posture of your prayer life. Most of our battles are to be fought there. And in praying, here's the thing, when we're praying to an all-powerful God, isn't it great when you pray to God, he's bigger than the earthquakes in Japan. He's bigger than the earthquakes in Ecuador. They are ti- the, Bible, the Bible says that all that we can see in nature are the mere edges of his ways. I mean, his power is unbelievable. We have the unique opportunity to go before the throne of God and bring down evil, to pull down kingdoms, to pull down terrorism, to pull down false religions, and the list is endless. We have that authority. If someone said to you, I know you're having issues in your life, I will give you an audience with the President of the United States, most of you say, that's pretty cool. You have an audience with someone far greater. God's given us that access. Remember the disciples, they had failed to pray. They had failed to pray, but they were immediately ready to use human swords. You see the picture? They didn't exercise the spiritual power, but they were ready to use the physical power. They had failed to pray. They are ready to use earthly means. They had it backwards. They had it backwards at this point. 
pray first, gain the wisdom and direction, then pick up the sword, which is usually going to be this sword. Pray first, then gain the wisdom, then use the sword, which is usually going to be the word of God, not actually a physical sword in most cases. Jesus, at this point, his brow is already dripping with blood because he's been in such intense prayer. We talked about that last week. His brow is dripping with blood due to the intensity and the anguish of his prayer. But he had been strengthened by prayer. God had even sent an angel down from heaven to strengthen him, reminding us that God will send what we need too. And what did Jesus do at that time? Well, he didn't need to learn anything or to grow. He simply was accepting the will of the Father to go to the cross. He knew that his arrest was all part of God's plan. That's why he he didn't want them to fight it. He knew his arrest. He knew he had to go to the cross. That's what he'd already rebuked Peter once before. He had to go to the cross. This was God's plan. And he was teaching the disciples when he says, permit even this. He was teaching his disciples to permit and trust what God was allowing because this was God's plan. Christian, is there something in your life that God's telling you to stop trying to fight against? Always trying to fix and just permit God to work through it. Think about that. I don't know what that is. I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm not going to be one person here today. Is there something that you're still fighting against? You think you're supposed to fix every bit of it, and God's saying, permit even this. If it's not sin, remember the prayer we had Elizabeth Kuhn last week? Lord, if this is from you, I accept it. If it's not from you, I resist it in the name of Calvary. He wanted them to permit the will of God. Take a look at our next thing as we're coming to a close here. Perdition. What is this this all about? In verse 52 and 53. Perdition. Jesus says, he asks, you know, why are you coming now? Of course, he knew the answers to the questions he's asking. But he says at the end of verse 53, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In John 17, 12, Jesus prays this to the Father. He's praying to God and he says, Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That was Judas too. Jesus said, I have not lost a single one except for the son of perdition. What does this word perdition mean? That was the name that Jesus ascribed to Judas was son of perdition. The word perdition means destroying or utter destruction. So Jesus refers to Judas as the son of destruction. It's not a great name to have from God, right? Son of destruction. Jesus, the son of life. He's life-giving. Jesus, saying of Judas, he's accepted death and destruction. No doubt in uh, in connection with Satan indwelling Judas, and this all happened sometime before he went to the religious authorities, he actually becomes indwelled by Satan And so Satan, who is one of his names, means destroyer, is actually indwelling Judas. And Judas is taking on this same bloodthirst that Satan has. In the New Testament, the Greek word for perdition is used 20 times with uses such as destruction, waste, damnable, to die, and to perish. It's never used in a good way. If perdition is attached to a person's name, it's not a good thing. 
This is who Satan is. Satan loves darkness and he loves death. The Bible says of mankind, man loves sin because, man loves darkness because his deeds are what? Evil. Men love darkness rather than light. It's amazing that people are attracted to destruction. Again, I, 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 I've mentioned it before. I look at the fascination people have with video games that are all about destruction. Now, they don't want to live in destruction. They just like to play it. Right? They just like to... Well, I just like to go there in, in imaginary world. I like to see buildings crumble, and I like to see you know, blood all over the place and shoot up all kinds of people. We've got a generation of young men doing that, and then we're surprised when they do it in real life. Why? Because they've exposed themselves to darkness. Because people are drawn to darkness. And Satan knows it. And he knew Judas was drawn to darkness. And Satan, he's a roaring lion, seeking him. He may destroy and devour. And Satan's desire is to destroy individuals, families, nations. Entire civilizations. And what Jesus is saying, he says, this is your hour. This was Satan's brief hour. A time that God had allowed where Satan would seek to destroy Judas, sift the disciples as wheat, and ultimately mock, torture, and crucify Jesus Christ. God says, all right, you can have your hour, but my saints will come through. Because Jesus said, I've prayed that, what, your faith would not fail. But the ones that want to follow you will be destroyed. Isn't it great to know that Jesus would not be defeated by Satan's hour? Isn't that great to know? Jesus is underscoring that everything taking place at this time in world history, everything taking place on this dark night, in the middle of the night, is a satanic effort. This is what Jesus is saying. This is satanic. He says, this is the power of darkness. This is an assault on Jesus. It's an assault on the kingdom of God. Christian, be aware and understand that the things you see in the news that make your jaw drop, the deceptions you see, and you wonder sometimes, how do people not see this? You ever wonder that? You ever say, how do people not understand this? Well, they don't have the Holy Spirit. You see the arrogance, you see the lust, you see the pride of this world. You are seeing the prince of darkness at work. It's the power of darkness. There really is a power of darkness. But we've got some really good news. You want the good news? Although the power of Satan is real, it would be like comparing the power in your light socket to the sun. The power in your light socket's real. But the sun can hold one million earths, and the power of the sun is astronomically greater than the power in your light socket. One solar flare from the sun would consume the entire earth. Done. Gone. Just one solar flare if you put the earth up. And so God's power, and that's a bad comparison because God's power is infinite. The sun's isn't infinite. So although Satan has some power, he has no power against us because John writes in 1 John 4, 4, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Isn't that the good news? Power of darkness is real, but Jesus' power is astronomically more. Peter on this night, though, he did not walk in the strength and the power available through Christ. And this is what he ended up at that moment, powerless. 
Peter's, he follows Jesus at a distance, and he ends up in this courtyard of Caiaphas the high priest. Jesus is inside. They're already beginning the interrogation, and Peter's outside warming himself. Jerusalem, if you go there, gets cold at night, generally, but especially certain times of the year, it uh, gets very cold. But he's cold. He's tired. Remember, they wanted to fall asleep. He's understandably distressed. Jesus knows Peter's heart. Peter loved his master. And he didn't want to see Jesus wrongly accused. He didn't want to see Jesus suffer. He wanted to believe that Jesus just might be set free. And Peter's also very afraid at this point. If Jesus is being accused, it might follow that those who are followers of Jesus would also be in danger. In fact, we know from Mark's gospel that Mark himself, Mark's uh, garments were ripped off by soldiers. Mark ran away naked because they grabbed him and ripped all of his garments off. So Peter keeps his distance, wanting to be able to know what's happening to Jesus but not be associated with Jesus because of fear. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Isn't Peter's assumed safe distance similar to how many people follow Jesus today? Be kind of nearby Jesus, but don't let anyone know we're with him. We've all been guilty of this, haven't we? Everyone in this room has been guilty at least once of that type of position. So then these inquiries come, from, come for Peter. Uh, servant girl says, I, I know you're with him. Then comes another, you're with him. Then so, so your, your speech is a Galilean. We know you're with him. Another, another uh, one of the Gospels says that they actually say your speech betrays you. You are definitely a Galilean. If you're from the deep south, you ain't going to be able to hide it, folks, right? If you're from Boston, you definitely aren't going to hide it, right? I've got a pastor friend from Boston, and he pastors here in Virginia. I said, how do they receive you here? You know, you, you sound like John F. Kennedy and everything, you know, so. But um, actually, they receive him well. But your, your accent, where you're from, that betrayed him. So people were like, you know, we know that you're with Jesus. We know you're, you're not Judean, you're Galilean. Back when they were in the garden, Jesus had warned the disciples to what? Pray. Pray, why? Because he said, you'll be tempted, you'll be sifted, and Satan wants to see if you'll stand and remain faithful. They needed to walk by faith, to have the God-given power to stand and not be ruled by fear. Isn't fear just something that just can overwhelm you in life? I, I, it's funny, before I knew Christ and I was younger, I never had, when I was young I had no fears of anything. Stupidity, you know, you just like you going down the mountain, no problem. These morons don't know what they're doing, but I'm coming right by, you know. Then I get older, and then you then you have Christ, and you know how messed up the world is, and you you start to actually be wise enough that fear actually will come in, and yet God wants us to resist it too, as our brother Sam says. You know, faith is always against the backdrop of fear. Jesus knew they needed to pray through this. They needed God-given power over fear. And there's only one source. Genuine faith comes through God's word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, by his word, through his spirit, in the vehicle of prayer. 
There's no other substitutes. And I know an author once wrote, Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Anything less and fear and doubt and weaknesses will overrun our flimsy flesh and our best of intentions. Because we don't go into situations, hey, I can't wait to fail here. No, we have good intentions. Peter did not go into that courtyard intending to fail and fall. He did not go in there thinking, I'm going to deny Jesus three times, just like he said before the rooster crows a second time. There was more than enough power for Peter from God available had it been appropriated. And you and I in life, we'll look back and see Peter and we'll say, God didn't let us down. I didn't appropriate the power. I didn't go into prayer. I wasn't ready. But the third inquiry finally comes, and speech gives him away. Matter of fact, one of the other gospels say he begins to curse. By the way, I hope our speech, spiritually speaking, does give us away. I hope people do notice you're with Jesus. That's a good thing. Then don't start cursing and say, oh, I'm not, you know. Here it works out. I can tell you're of Jesus. You act like him. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to be accused of. Peter was accused of a good thing, but he was afraid. He didn't want to be accused of that at that moment. And the dominating power of fear was on him, and it should have been the power of faith flowing through him. So he says with force, I do not know the man. Mark's gospel indicates, it's Mark's that tells about him cursing there. You know, he went back to the things that he said before he dropped his nets to follow Jesus. It's not hard to go way back in time and pick up those things, is it? But understand this, Christian. Peter hadn't premeditated to sin, did he? He had failed to pray, but he wasn't planning to sin. Do you get the difference? He did not premeditate to sin. He fell in a moment of weakness because he hadn't been prayed up. He didn't plan to deny Christ, but he had failed to obey Christ when Christ said, you need to be praying, and so he was defenseless when the attack came. David was defenseless when the temptation came. Jesus was never defenseless because he was always prayed up. Make sense? And he fell hard, and look what it says. And see, Peter went and wept bitterly. But I want to close us with some good news for as we finish up here this morning. And you might not say, well, that doesn't look like a good word, painful. <laughs> Falling hurts, doesn't it? Give me, give me five minutes because I think you'll be encouraged with, as we wrap this up. Falling hurts. You feel like a complete failure, especially when you have really stained the name of Jesus or hid your Christianity. You feel like a coward. You feel like a traitor to your Savior. And guess what? We are all those things. That's true. You might even feel like, how can I be saved and know Christ and fail like this? You might even feel that depth. You might even start preaching to yourself in your mind like an evangelist or a prophet. Maybe even a verse like Matthew 10, 33 comes to mind. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You might have those kind of thoughts come in. That's scripture. That applies to me. By the way, that's, that verse is only recorded once in the Gospels of Jesus. Only one time is that verse recorded. 
this does not mean, um, when Jesus says, whoever denies before men, I'll deny before the Father, this does not mean Jesus saying, you're out, oh, you're back in. You're out, you're back in. Oh, you're out, you're back in. You deny me today, you're out. Oh, you oh, didn't deny me, you're back in. You deny me today, oh, you're out again. Which day am I, Lord? Yesterday I denied you, you know, back and forth. You're in the heaven, you're in the kingdom, you're out of the kingdom. That's not what that verse is saying. A verse like this, because Jesus makes a statement, and it is a powerful verse, a statement and a verse like this should greatly concern and convict a non-believer who has continued to resist and deny Christ again and again and again and rejecting salvation. That's what Judas had done. But it should correct the believer when we have those one-off moments of resistance and denial. Make sense? It should correct us. It shouldn't condemn us, but it should correct us. And it should correct us to remind us we have the same father that Jesus has. Because he says the father's name here. We have the same father. Matthew 10.33 isn't related to one-off failures in life. And if it was, none of us are saved. That's the good news. We all have flaws and we all have failures. And from those flaws and from the failures, from the times when you skinned your knees really bad and you did deny Jesus in a moment where you knew you should have been a witness and you weren't, or you knew you should have avoided this situation and you didn't, or you knew you shouldn't have watched that and you did and now you feel, oh, dirty for the next week, all whatever it may be, we have those times. From those failures, Jesus will faithfully pick us up clean us off, forgive us, and re-strengthen us. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Notice the contrast. The wicked, it's a one-time fall of a house of cards. The righteous person, it's like climbing up a mountain and falling a lot, but getting there finally. Not because you're sa- not because you don't get there because you work. You get there because you are saved. Christ knows our weaknesses, and he's there to forgive and restore. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And although Jesus doesn't want us to deny him, he doesn't want us to deny him, he doesn't want us to have uh, these times of our lips betraying him, he doesn't want us to fail, he wants us to be overcomers. The fact is we will fail. The fact is we will fail because we've not been yet made perfect. That's not till heaven. And he will use those failures to make us more like what? Him. Jesus is the only one that's ever walked the earth that didn't need to fail to learn. The rest of us have to learn this way sometimes. A.W. Tozer said, the man who is elated by success but cast down by failure is still a carnal man. Absorb that thought. He says the man who is elated by success but cast down by failure is still a carnal man. What is Tozer saying? Failure should never cause us to give up, to check out, and sit out. That's what he's saying. He said if failure caused you to say, that's it, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. God's done with me. I can't be of any use anymore. Those responses reflect pride, self-pity, a lack of perseverance, and a lack of gratitude for grace. Right? Because God, Jesus said, hey, of course you failed. 
You know your Proverbs? You might fall a lot. Get back up. Let me cleanse you and get back in the game. No failure should cause us to check out, but it should cause us to get on our knees. And when we get on our knees, we get forgiven. And we'll have the Lord lift us back up. And he'll make things right. And if we need to, he might send us to go and make things right. Right? That's not always the fun part. Especially if you've really offended someone and you really blew it, you might have to go back and say, I'm sorry to somebody. But that's what God's grace will give you to do. And then you'll be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Many have found, and I concur in my own life, that we learn more from failure than we ever do from success. Success doesn't teach us a lot. Success makes us think we can go on autopilot. Failure, we learn a lot from failure. At minimum, what do we learn from failure? We learn our weaknesses, and we learn that we need the grace of God. At minimum, we learn that through failure. I'm, I'm thankful now for the failures. Uh, failure, if we learn from it, if I cross this out, is extremely valuable. What can be painful and what can feel miserable, those failures can be extremely valuable. If it makes us more humble, and humility is desperately needed if we want to be a reflection of Jesus, it was worth it, in a sense. Amen? Because, Christian, if you've fallen, you're far from alone. But let that failure bring about new beginnings in your life. He wants to make all things new. He wants to, you to know that his grace is enough. If you've resisted Christ, you're not born again. What are you waiting for? His grace wants to bring you into the kingdom of God. He wants to be your heavenly father. He wants to give you forgiveness. The failures. Peter would be re-strengthened. And I think if you've read the rest of the Bible, Peter will go on to be a much more powerful apostle because Peter would learn he could no longer depend on his ability to grab a sword. His ability to, oh, I'm just a tough-minded person. Right? I'm just a pull-myself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of guy. No, he had to rely on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close with one of my favorite passages in Scriptures, Jude 1, 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we don't like failure, and we don't like to fail you, and we don't like to displease you, but we thank you that you give us grace when we do. And we thank you, Lord, that you are willing, not only willing, but desiring to cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. Lord, you would restore Peter, and he would go on, to preach a powerful message there in Jerusalem where 3,000 would come to Christ in one day. And you'd use him to feed the sheep and to, and to build up many other lives. Lord, I pray that no one here would check out, sit out because of a failure, but instead, Lord, receive your grace and to walk in newness of life. For, Lord, there's a job to be done until you return. And you're using a lot of people who have failed to do that job. And we thank you, Lord, that you take imperfect vessels like us and use 
us for your glory. And Lord, if there's anyone here that, like Judas, has never really given their life to you, I pray that today that they would surrender their heart and life and follow you, receive the forgiveness. You're not desiring that anyone would end up with Satan in a place of destruction, but that all would be redeemed. We know that your heart is compassionate, and you're in the business, Lord, of remaking lives and redeeming lives. Help us, Lord, to treasure that and accept your grace. In your name we pray, amen.